7. Blasphemous bad thoughts. No disease of the imagination is so difficult to cure as that which is complicated with the dread of guilt. Fancy and conscious then act interchangeably upon us. The superstitious are often melancholy, and the melancholic almost always superstitious. Samuel Johnson, 1709-1784 Martin Luther was tormented by urges to curse God and Jesus. While praying, he was obsessed with images of the devil's behind. St. Ignatius could not step on two pieces of straw if they formed a cross, lest he show disrespect to Christ crucified. Robert Burton, in his classic book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, wrote in 1621 of an unfortunate fellow who, if he was silent in the auditorium at as a sermon, he was afraid he shall speak aloud at unawares, something indecent, unfit to be said. And John Moore, the Bishop of Norwich, preached before Queen Mary II in 1691 on religious melancholy, describing good moral worshippers who are tormented by naughty and sometimes blasphemous thoughts, despite all of their efforts to stifle and suppress them. When bad thoughts take on religious implications, suffering is often greater, and treatment complicated. That is why I've held off discussing this complicated special case of bad thoughts until having introduced the standard treatments. No one has more experience treating religious bad thoughts than Dr. E. Minicciello, my longtime friend and mentor at Massachusetts General Hospital. With a background as a Catholic priest, as well as decades of experience in treating people with obsessions, Dr. Minicciello has unique perspective on the issues. Consequently, I frequently refer my patients with religious concerns about bad thoughts to him for one or more sessions. The most common problem he sees in patients troubled by blasphemous thoughts is what he calls a totally untheological view of God. Not long ago, I referred Janny, the young woman suffering from both bad thoughts and PTSD flashbacks, to speak with Dr. Miniacello about her belief that she was doomed to spend eternity in hell. Janny had been raised Catholic and attended Mass every Sunday morning with her family and had been taught that the evil thoughts were just as sinful as evil acts. Because of her evil thoughts, she had believed for a long time she could remember that she was headed to hell after she died. To help Janny feel more comfortable in her first meeting with Dr. Miniacello, I sat to introduce them and then listen to the conversation. Dr. Miniacello, warmth, kindness, and wisdom gradually put Janny at ease, and she was soon asking him questions she had yearned to ask for years. To correct what he called Janny's untheological view of God, Dr. Miniacello started by trying to convince her that God is not a monster. He is not like a human who gets angry and retaliates. Instead, Dr. Miniacello emphasized to Janny over and over that the scriptures describe a God of love. Since Janny was a Christian, he asked her, How do we know God? We know God through Jesus. And what was Jesus' description of the Father? A God of love. He gave her examples such as the parable of the prodigal son. Despite all the wrong things the prodigal son had done, his father forgave him totally and ordered a great celebration for the son whom he believed was lost forever. Dr. Miniacello's message to Jenny was that he is a God of love, love with no strings attached, unconditional love. Dr. Miniacello patiently answered each of Jenny's questions, always reassuring that she's not going to lose God's love unless she makes a deliberate choice to do something that she knows to be evil, such as commit murder, and then remains unrepentant. 
He contrasted this with Janney's bad thoughts, which aren't sinful by these criteria, but rather are the product of a brain disorder, OCD. As she told him about each of her thoughts, he reassured her that there was nothing sinful about having them. Even the most violent or perverse ones, nothing he told her was going to sever her relationship with God. Most importantly, Dr. Miniacello reassured Jenny that her thoughts have nothing to do with her as a person. They are simply the result of the disorder that she suffers from. He pointed out that, unlike her, people who are truly violent are not bothered by these kind of bad thoughts. We could view what Dr. Miniacello did with Jenny as a special case of the cognitive therapy described earlier, one carried out by spiritual advisors for the most of human history. I met with Janie after her meeting with Dr. Miniacello, and she told me that she felt a little less certain that she was destined for hell and less afraid. In the weeks that followed, she began discussing her fears further with the priest that Dr. Miniacello recommended, and she now feels confident enough to begin confronting her bad thoughts directly with exposure therapy without considering them sins. Although she has a long way to go, Jenny tells me that she now feels hope for the first time in a long while. Later, when I discussed Janie's case with Dr. Miniacello, he reminded me that we must always remember that people like Janny are usually sensitive people with a sensitive sense of God. As I listened, I thought back to my group members and their childhoods as highly sensitive and conscientious children, which I described in chapter four. These pieces seem to fit. Perhaps this is why they are so unforgiving of themselves as adults. Religious obsessions have a unique quality that Dr. Miniacello cautions must always be kept in mind. He gives us an example, a Christian patient suffering from true blasphemous obsessions or urges. The patient believed these thoughts were inspired by Satan, thinking, I hate God. Having sexual thoughts or images about religious figures, thoughts of desecrating the bread and wine of the Eucharist, or urges to tear down and smash the crucifix. Usually when I do exposure therapy, I tell the patient that by exposing himself to the feared situation, he will discover that nothing bad will happen. But in Dr. Miniacello's example, the patient feared that the punishment might be long delayed, perhaps until after his death. Because we are talking about the afterlife, which cannot be directly tested, the patient must have faith in what Dr. Miniacello and other religious advisors say before the patient is willing to do exposure therapy. On the other hand, Dr. Miniacello warns that if Janie did not have this faith, but continued to believe that her thoughts and exposure exercises were demonic or sinful, then he would never encourage her to do exposure therapy to such things. He has seen too many cases where forcing patients to do this has made them worse, as with his example of the man who is truly afraid of performing satanic acts. Dr. Miniacello cautions therapists to first make certain that the patient doesn't truly believe the exposure tasks are sinful before encouraging him to do any exposure. Our responsibility, after Hippocrates, must always be first to do no harm. The key question Dr. Miniacello always keeps in mind is, do you truly believe that God is going to punish you for having your thoughts? Another expert in religious obsessions, Dr. Joseph Cariucci at Loyola College in Maryland, recently echoed Dr. Miniacelli's observations in our textbook on OCD. The more intractable symptoms in OCD often fall under the rubric of undervalued ideas. Overvalued ideas occupy a midway point between reality and delusion, ideas firmly held but with a tinge of uncertainty as to their truth. Religious obsessions and compulsions, because they involve the ethical dimension for people, 
frequently fall into this category of overvaluing ideas. In other words, bad thoughts involving religion can be especially difficult to treat if the sufferer truly fears God's punishment of internal damnation. If so, the shame of having bad thoughts is magnified because they're perceived sinfulness and they are rarely shared with another human being. In cases such as these, medication treatments are rarely effective unless the shame and guilt are relieved through counseling. In Dr. Cariocci's experience, many patients, due to their religious beliefs, are unwilling to engage in exposure therapy. They need to get better. For example, some of his patients with religious obsessions see their thoughts and feelings, anger, jealousy, sexual arousal, as equivalent to performing the act they think about. They then worry that the exposure exercises, such as looking at pictures of partially clothed people in a department store catalog, constitutes adultery of the heart and thus are unwilling to do it. To avoid this problem, Dr. Cariocci often lists the exposure tasks he has and then has his patient take this list to a trusted spiritual advisor to determine which tasks are acceptable and which are not. Cariocci is then careful to ask his patient to do only those tasks deemed acceptable. Men described in Chapter 5 whose religious obsessions were successfully treated with exposure therapy by Dr. Cariocci proves that with this understanding and patient approach, exposure therapy can be effective even for strictly religious. Other times, however, even this understanding approach is not enough. Dr. Cariocci notes that some patients still refuse or are unable to comply with exposure therapy, even after they may have gotten permission from religious advisors. He takes notes that his successfully treated patient might have refused to do the prescribed exposure of looking at the catalog pictures if he had an unshakable belief that lustful feelings would emerge during the experience and that they would be sinful. As Dr. Cariocci has found, such strict beliefs are usually transmitted by subgroups within religious traditions who teach the necessity of strict legalistic conformity to spiritual or moral values. These subgroups transmit ethical guidelines that exceed the received norms of the majority. For example, one community of Italian monks places stiff, bristled scrub brushes in the shower stalls so monks need not touch their genitals when washing. Another woman has accepted the view of her religious educators that sex, in itself, inherently nasty and disgusting, even if permitted in marriage. When she has sex with her husband, she puts her Bible in the drawer so as not to mix religious and sexual images in her mind. What can be done to change such strongly held beliefs? How would an expert in religious obsession such as Dr. Minicelli advise a patient who truly believes that he or she is going to be punished by God for his or her thoughts? In the end, he says, what you really have to do is help the person straighten out their theology. And unfortunately, most psychotherapists don't have that kind of training. Because of my background, I can try to do it, but you have to be very careful about whom the patient asks for help. They should consult with someone they trust in their denomination who understands OCD and religious obsessions. If a religious leader who does not understand these kind of obsessions is consulted, and the patient hears anything from him that reinforces belief in eternal damnation, this usually makes the belief stronger and more resistant to change. Dr. Minicelli also advises his Catholic patients with religious obsessions to visit their local Paulist Center or Newman Center at a college or university for a spiritual direction. There they will find highly educated priests who are ecumenical-minded and who have been trained in the more liberal post-Vatican II theology. Jews with religious obsessions might try to talk to a Reformed rabbi, 
since an Orthodox rabbi who is unfamiliar with obsessions could unknowingly reinforce an obsessional fear. Happily, in my experience, most religious advisors have been sensitive and understanding in dealing with patients with religious obsessions. Often it has been useful for the therapist to speak with advisor to answer any questions he or she may have about OCD. Bad thoughts in other religions. Why has this chapter focused on the religious obsessions of Christians? Because, based on my and Dr. Minicelli's experience, blasphemous thoughts and the fear that they will lead to eternal damnation are most common in Catholics taught a pre-Vatican II theology and in evangelical Protestants. Do Jews, followers of Islam, and members of other organized religions have religious obsessions like these? Yes, although they may take a different form. I once consulted on the case of an emaciated young Jewish man who was hospitalized and was being nourished through a nasal tube emptying directly into his stomach. Nothing was physically wrong with him. He had become so tormented, paralyzed, by attempting to comply perfectly with all the Jewish dietary laws that he had stopped eating altogether. Despite being told by the chief rabbi in the United States that his fears were irrational, some observant Jews do suffer from the bad thoughts that are subject in this book. Dr. David Greenberg and Eliza Witzvum of Herzog Hospital in Jerusalem reported that of 34 referrals for OCD, 19 were ultra-Orthodox Jews and 13 had religious obsessions. Do observant Jews sometimes get thoughts of eating pork in synagogue or of defiling the Torah when the Ark is opened? As the imp of the perverse would predict, I don't know. But I wouldn't be at all shocked if I met a patient with this problem. In my experience, followers of Islam also tend to be troubled by fears of not performing religious rituals perfectly, such as not facing Mecca perfectly during prayer, or perhaps not praying at the correct time. Doctors Greenberg and Ritzwum describe the terms waswas, which in verse in the Quran refers to the evil thoughts or doubts preventing the proper completion of pre-prayeral ritual washing. Finally, two studies from primarily Protestant England reported a low prevalence of religious obsessions in patients with OCD. Two of 41 in one study and none of 45 in the other. Why are these rates so low? Dr. Greenberg and Witzwum hypothesize that the lack of centrality of religion in everyday England may be responsible. Likewise, on a recent visit to London, I was told that the Maudsley Hospital OCD program in London is rarely referred people with religious or blasphemous obsessions. Apparently, in religious bad thoughts, as with all others, the imp of the perverse operates in his, operates in his usual way, tormenting the sufferer with bad thoughts of doing whatever the surrounding culture considers the most inappropriate thing he or she could possibly do. Since what is considered most inappropriate varies from culture to culture and religion to religion, so do the thoughts the imp seizes upon to cause his mischief.